While they abhorred idolatry, they were willing to rob idol temples. And I'm sure in the process they rationalized, after all, we're, we're getting rid of some of these idols that these Gentiles worship. And they had chosen money over obedience. They had chosen greed over God. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Romans, and we have spent a good amount of time looking first at how it is the nature of man to suppress the truth of God, and in so doing, to sink in an increasingly depraved life. Romans chapter 1 specifically addresses non-Jews, but the Apostle Paul in chapter 2 explains that a sin nature is not exclusive to Gentiles, that Jews also will face the wrath of God if they fail to repent or to turn away from their sinful ways. Now this would have undoubtedly upset some Jewish readers because many felt that being Israelites, part of God's chosen people, and having had the law of God passed down to them through Moses, they possessed an imputed righteousness. But Paul explains that regardless of the law, no one is declared righteous apart from faith in God's provision for salvation. Yesterday, we looked at eight reasons why the Jews would have felt safe about their salvation. But as we pick up today, Dr. Brogy looks at five reasons the Apostle notes that the Jews should have felt condemned. Paul's method here in the book of Romans with dealing with false notions was a very common teaching technique of the first century called diatribe. If you've ever taken a philosophy course in in college, you know that it was a well-established method by Plato and Aristotle and a number of Greek philosophers. And what they do is they basically set up a dialogue, the teacher with his students or with his critics, first in essence positing their questions and then answering them. We've already seen that in the first half of this chapter. These are not eight imaginary reasons. These are eight living reasons that were true in the first century. If you study the Gospels, you will find all eight in the teachings of Christ. And Paul knew them. He was a Pharisee. He would have used them himself as a Pharisee. And in going to the Jew first and then to the Greek, when he traveled to synagogues on his missionary journeys, he would have heard them over and over and over and over again. So now Paul turns the tables on them by asking five rhetorical questions to smash their eight reasons of confidence. First, he points out that they had not practiced what they preached. They had not practiced what they preached. He's going here for the jugular by asking these questions to reveal their false assurance. Look at verse 20. Notice how it begins. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? These Jewish people who knew and had taught the truth of the law of God had not applied it to their own lives. Their beliefs had not matched their behavior. As the book of James indicates, they had orthodoxy, but they did not have orthopraxy. They had a religious creed that was sound, but they did not have a righteous conduct to match it. So you teach others, but you don't teach yourself. And of course, they would say, what do you mean we don't apply the law? Haven't you been watching us? Don't you see the way we wash our hands before we eat? Don't you see that we refrain from work on the Sabbath? 
Don't you see that we never miss a sacrifice or a holy day? Don't you see that we fast, we pray, we give? What do you mean we don't apply the law? So he takes it a little bit further. Not only does he say they have not practiced what they have preached. Number two, they had not developed lives of integrity. They had not developed lives of integrity. Again, he's blowing apart their objections. You who preach that one shall not steal. Do you steal? Now, Paul is not outright saying you're a thief. But instead, he's asking this rhetorical question to provoke their conscience. Twice over in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, he did the same thing. At the beginning of his ministry, he went in and he cleansed the temple, as John 2 indicates, and as the synoptics indicate, at the end of his ministry, he cleansed the temple a second time. And on both occasions, he said, you've made my father's house a house of merchandise, a robber's den, when it ought to be a house of prayer. And so, we could ask the same question today. Do you claim to know Christ? Do you claim to be a Christian and at the same time still? My son, who's just finished his freshman year at USC, he's taking one course and a whole school of his classmates in one class got an F on one paper because they copy-pasted out of the internet. And they've got all these sophisticated programs now where they can find when people copy paste and plagiarize, and they all got these elves they had stolen. I read an article recently that caught my attention. They say that the average employee theft in just 10 years, in the last 10 years, has gone from approximately $20 billion a year to $200 billion a year here in America. That includes everything from sweethearting to stolen office supplies to stolen software products to uh, falsifying a business expense report. Listen, Paul is saying there's a distinction between a believer and a phony believer. And Paul seems to believe, and God believes it too, because he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that one of the marks of someone who is genuinely converted is that there's integrity and honesty of life. The third issue he raises, they had not lived lives of moral purity. They had not lived lives of moral purity. Look at his third rhetorical question here in verse 22. You who say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Now a man or a woman who's religious but lost may talk about sexual sin when they themselves have not purified themselves from it. Uh, Hold your finger here and go to the book of Ephesians, would you? It's to the right of where you are. Four little books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right? Right after 1 and 2 Corinthians, if you're new to the Bible. Go to Ephesians, would you? chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. If you know the book of Ephesians, it has two major divisions. Chapters 1 through 3 deal with what we believe. Chapters 4 through 6 deal with how we behave. And so having given us the doctrinal basis of what we believe, he in the second half of the book says, here's how it ought to affect you. Look at chapter 4 and drop down, if you will, to verse 17. He said, so this I say, And affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Gentiles here being a synonym as in the Sermon on the Mount for a pagan, an unbeliever. 
that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Then uh, look at the chapter 5. Turn over to chapter 5 and look at verse 3, if you will. He says, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words because of these things the wrath of God comes upon unbelievers. Now back here in Romans. He says to these Jews, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? God wants us to understand that one of the principal qualities of an unbelieving word is the utter abandonment of God's sexual standards. And today, everything is sold by sex, whether it's cars or beer or anything else you can think of. And understand, too, that the magnitude of this problem is not going to decrease. God promises as we move to the end of the age, it will increase. Because again, Jesus likens the return of himself from heaven to the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Days of gross immorality as in Noah's day. Days of gross perversion as in Lot's day. So we have the President of the United States, we have the Vice President of the United States, and we have scores of Republicans and Democrats in Congress who are sanctioning same-sex marriage. Friend, it is wrong, and we're living in a day where heterosexuals are willing to embrace it and agree to it and have no problem with it because they have become so numb in their own immoral standards. And so God is saying, listen, I have some holy standards. Adultery, sex with someone to whom you are not married is not just some fling. It's not just some affair. It's not just some midlife crisis. It's not some self-fulfilling relationship. It is sin. And sex before marriage is not just some rite of passage for young people. It's not something that is okay if we love each other or okay if we're going to get married. It is fornication. And God is saying, listen, if I have not fundamentally changed you in the moral realm, you've got a phony Christianity. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is using this as a test of conversion. And he's dumping on those Jews in his day who said they knew the Lord. And Paul says, by your immorality, you deny the Lord. And the things that used to be embarrassing to us, we entertain ourselves with. Things that 30 years ago you could not dream of being on television have now become bestsellers and they become headlines in the talk of reality shows. Oh, there would be some Jews who'd say, oh, we've never committed the act. 
And Paul would say what Jesus said, everyone who looks at a woman to lust at her has committed adultery in his heart. Adultery of the heart is when temptation goes mentally into a fantasy. Adultery of the body is when you engage literally in the flesh. And there are so many people who are no different from pagans. Their heart doesn't beat for moral purity. I mean, people all the time say, oh, I'm saved. It's my boyfriend here. We've been living together for five years. Oh, but we're both born again. You know, we're going to heaven. We may not have much faster when we get there, but we're going. Really? God says something else. We better listen. Because this is a widespread problem in evangelicalism today where God's standards are muddied and muddled even by many mega church pastors who are afraid to stand up for what is right. Notice next, they had not kept themselves from materialism. They had not kept themselves from materialism. He says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now this question at first read is a little challenging because if you know anything about Jews in the first century and throughout their history, they recoiled at any form of idolatry. They would not dream of going anywhere near an idol temple. But letting Scripture interpret Scripture, there were some exceptions when it came to financial gain. That's why Moses said this in Deuteronomy 7. God knew what would happen. He said, the graven images of their gods, you are to burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. He's warning them, you're going into the promised land, you're going to conquer these pagan nations who are covered over in idols, and their idols are covered over in gold and silver, and you are to burn them, you're not even to save the silver and the gold off of them. And so while a faithful Jew would never consider bowing down to an image of gold or silver, they'd love to get their hands on that precious metal. And so while they abhorred idolatry, they were willing to rob idol temples. And I'm sure in the process they rationalized, after all, we're, we're getting rid of some of these idols that these Gentiles worship. And they had chosen money over obedience. They had chosen greed over God. And again, it's a reminder that greed and materialism is a mark of an unbeliever. Take a look at your own checkbook and ask yourself, how much do I give to the work of the Lord? And how much do I keep for myself? Now, I believe among other things that your checkbook register will say something about where your heart is. I asked our financial secretary recently, I said, how many active families do we have in our church? She said about 1,300, according to our database, who are active. And by a family unit, we mean either a, a single person, a married couple, married with, with children, or whatever it may be. Now, I know we only have about 70, 75% of our people on any given Sunday due to military and somebody's sick and the mom's home and all those other things, and I understand that. I said, out of those 1,300 active families, how many regularly faithfully give? I said, how many contribution statements did you mail last year? She said, 780. What constitutes the need for a written statement by, according to the IRS? Well, the IRS says 
that if you give $5 or more a month, then you need to have a written contribution statement. Now, those who know me know that I'm not worried about our budget. God's going to do what God is going to do. And I rest in that. I live by faith for over a dozen years as a missionary. I know how to trust God, and I'm still trusting God for things that are above and beyond anything that I could ever pull off for hundreds of missionaries that we are supporting each month. But the thing that concerns me are people who claim to know the Lord Jesus, but their pocketbook doesn't reflect it. Now, I know we grow largely by conversion. I understand that. And I understand that, 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 that giving is a growth process and an expression of maturity. But I recognize, too, that sometimes people for years live a self-centered, stingy life when God actually gives us as a mark of those who are unredeemed, not those who know Him. The final rhetorical question indicates they had not honored God in life. He says in verse 23, you who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And the answer very simple is, yes, you do. And so he writes here in verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. I went and studied that quotation very carefully this week. And it's a compilation of two verses brought together from two books of the Bible. Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 36. And what is really interesting is if you go back and read those two chapters, they are a reference to two different occasions in Israel's history when the Jewish people were mocked because they were defeated by their enemies. And an unbelieving world would say, can't Yahweh protect his own people? And Paul says, in essence, he takes that example where they are mocked because of their military defeat. And in essence, he applies it in the spiritual realm. And he says, listen, in the spiritual realm, the unbelievers, the Gentiles of this world are mocking you because of your spiritual defeat. In fact, they're not just mocking you, they're blaspheming the name. You are blaspheming the name of God by your spiritual defeats. So he's doing the same thing he did in Romans 2 in the first half. Romans 2, 1 to 3, you judge other people? You're claiming to have knowledge. You're claiming to understand precisely what God requires. And when you judge others and you do the exact same thing, man, you're inviting God's wrath. You cannot plead innocence because you cannot plead ignorance. Now, he's not not done yet. We're going to finish it next week. But let's talk about how to apply this to our lives today. Let me ask three applicational questions. Number one, how would you answer the first five rhetorical questions this morning? How would you answer these questions? Based on these questions that deal with things that we often speak about as Bible-believing Christians, dishonesty, sexual immorality, materialism, a life that honors God. Based on those questions, are you truly, genuinely born again? Do you teach others without teaching yourself? I mean, you can talk about the immorality of theft, but what does it mean if we lack personal integrity? Look, the, the time to ask these kinds of questions 
is not when Jesus comes back, because then it will be too late. He could come back before this day is over. You may die tomorrow. The time to ask the question is now. Does your life really bring honor to God? Question two, does the life you lead help or hinder the gospel? Does the life you lead help or hinder the gospel? We just read in verse 22, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's the ultimate slam in my opinion. Paul is saying, the reason I have such a difficult time in winning people to Jesus is because of some of the, the way some of you are living. You're saying, oh, we're special. We're Jewish. I'm a Christian. I'm born again. We have the law. I know my Bible. And God says, my name is blasphemed because of you. May I say that one of the greatest obstacles I have as a pastor in trying to win people to Christ are people who say they are born again Christians, but they live a lifestyle that denies it. I have members over the year that I am just embarrassed by. Because I know in it's happened unbelievers bringing their name up. People religious, but lost, religious, but dead. They are part of the living dead. Jesus spoke of such a problem when he said to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I would spit you out of my mouth. He's talking here about ritual without reality, about profession, without possession, about orthodoxy, without orthopraxy. And God is saying, look, I'd rather have you hot or cold, but lukewarm, it just makes me throw up. Because lukewarm Christians become a stumbling block to the lost. They become the alibi of sinners. They make pastors weep. Finally, I would just ask, Am I truly saved? Paul writes, test yourself to see if you be of the faith. Listen, it is very possible, and we're going to see it before we're done here with Romans, to have Christianity to touch your mind and even your emotions, but not your heart. It's possible to intellectually understand the gospel and to be emotionally moved by the gospel, but for it never to have touched your will. Do you have the marks of a new birth? Ask yourself this morning, am I part of the living dead or have I genuinely, truly been saved? Now, Father, we thank you that you gave us this passage this morning. Not just to equip those who are saved and dealing with the lost people that we deal with weekly, daily. But also to examine and purify your own church. Some who may be here today who outwardly are members, outwardly know all the right stuff but inwardly never have been fundamentally changed. Still others who 
have met Jesus Christ in salvation, but right now there's compromise in the human heart and there are living blurry Christian lives when you've called us to be bright lights set up on a hill, to be like pure salt that preserves righteousness. God, I pray today for someone who's lost who needs to be saved. You said whoever will call upon the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Have you ever truly submitted to Jesus as Lord? If not, I invite you there in the quietness of your heart to come to Him. Listen, it doesn't matter what other pastors and TV preachers and evangelists are telling you who will soothe you in your sin and tell you everything's fine. The only thing that matters is what God thinks. Because He is the one before whom you will stand someday. And so I invite you, if you've never truly fundamentally been changed with a birth from above, where you've become a new creature, where the old life has passed away and things have become new, today call upon Him and in faith cry out, Lord Jesus, save me. Now Father, we know we are living in challenging days. And we know that Your Word is not speaking of perfection. We all have faults. But You are speaking of a new fundamental direction that takes place in a person's life. And help us who name the name of the Lord to be useful in Your hands. To be vessels set apart, sanctified for Your use. If there's areas of compromise in the human heart, may we confess it and forsake it and burn like pure lights filled with the Spirit of God, useful to you. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His name's sake. Amen. For a copy of today's study from Romans chapter 2 entitled, The Living Dead, visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and download program ROM9. You can also download and listen to it from our Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, which is available through the iTunes Store or Google Play Store. And as always, you can call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. We want to remind you that the Search the Scriptures trip to Israel, originally scheduled for this month, has been rescheduled to next May the 11th through the 21st. This will be a wonderful time of learning and appreciating afresh the truths of God's Word in His chosen land. For more information, visit stsisraeltour.com. And we hope these studies from the Book of Romans are building up your ability to confidently share the truth of Christ with a world that is becoming increasingly ignorant of the Gospel. We need your help in continuing our mission of sharing this truth over the airwaves and through the internet. If you can help, please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 or go online at searchthescriptures.org and make a generous tax-deductible contribution. Thank you. Tomorrow we begin a look at religion that will take you to hell. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.